programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Square One Printing, 630 West, 200 North in Logan, for personalized printing for home or business, including wedding announcements, thank you cards, and family histories. Information at squareoneprinting.com. Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. NASA and four industry partners are ready for the first two missions of the Orion spacecraft. It is scheduled for launch in fall 2014 and 2017. It will be the team's first step towards deep space and another planet. The first flight will test critical systems for future missions that will carry humans further out into space. The NASA Space Launch System company team members are Alliant Tech Systems, commonly known as ATK, Lockheed Martin, Boeing, and Aerojet Rocketdyne. ATK also recently announced the Space Launch System's booster system is on schedule for the 2017 launch. I talked to five-time astronaut Kent Rominger, who is Vice President for Business and Strategy Development at ATK, about the industry collaboration and their upcoming missions. When NASA awarded the contracts to build the next heavy lift vehicle and capsule, the the prime on the core in the upper stage is Boeing, the prime on the capsule is Lockheed Martin, and then the prime on the, the solid rocket boosters that strap on is ATK. And then another major player in this is Aerojet Rocketdyne, and they produce the liquid engines that are on the core stage and the upper stage. And so the four of us all have to work together because this system, as you know, once it is built, uh, launches as one monolithic system. And so the four of us, it's important that the four of us work well together. And uh, interestingly, on other programs, we're all competitors. On this one, we're all teammates. And uh, the teammate side of it is working out extremely well. And uh, we, we all put forward a certain amount of effort meeting routinely to ensure we are all doing our, our piece and that we're not adversely affecting another piece of the system uh, as we as we do this. And the end result has been, uh, is really exciting that the Orion capsule is flying this year, this fall, the Orion flying in 2014. We ATK build the launch abort system that sits on top of it. So should there be a, an emergency as the Orion is being launched, uh, our abort system will actually pull the capsule away from the rocket so that the crew lands safely. That uh, gets them away from even something as severe as an explosion on the rocket. This system's designed to get them away from that safely, uh, and they will they will wind up, you know, parachuting in the end down range. The capsule comes down under parachutes. So. On the Ryan piece, we're very excited. On the heavy lift rocket piece, on SLS, uh, we are on schedule to launch in 2017. And so that one is really the, the Boeing, the Aerojet, and the ATK. And, and the three of us are all working very well together, and all of us are on schedule. Um, in fact, Boeing is uh, very quick to say, hey, we are ahead of schedule on the order of months, a, a couple of months they're ahead of their schedule. So we all are feeling very good about the progress that's being made. The first mission is going into deep space. Can you describe where it's going? Yes. So the uh, the Orion mission, the the test mission of it in 2014, 
is going out well beyond low Earth orbit. And low Earth orbit is where the space station is today. It's where the space shuttle flew. So it's going out on a profile towards the moon. It doesn't go all the way to the moon, but it, but it comes back in with enough velocity that it's going to test the heat shield on it uh, to reenter the Earth's atmosphere at a higher speed than uh, you would if you just go into low Earth orbit and come back. The Space Launch System first mission, they're still deciding exactly where it goes, but it's got the ability to take Orion uh, out around the moon, so back out into a lunar orbit, even on the test mission, and then come back in. So the following mission of SLS Orion will be the first one that has crew on it. So, you know, to, to kind of summarize 2014, Orion's flying on a, on a test vehicle. It's not actually on SLS. And then in 2017, SLS Orion are flying on SLS's maiden flight, and that will not be with the crew. And then the following mission will have a crew. And on that mission with crew, uh, I think NASA is still determining the best place to send the crew on that mission, but it absolutely has the capability to take them out uh, in orbits that are beyond the moon uh, and then bring them back. A recent ATK press release states you were able to reduce the booster manufacturing time by 46% and also is building the rocket with one-fourth the workforce that was required for the space shuttle, which seems really impressive. And uh, how were you able to do that? So thanks, Sherry. That is very impressive that we've been able to cut the amount of time, you know, to 46% to build basically a larger version of the rocket motor we've, we built with the space shuttle. And this is a, another really neat story because when the space shuttle was winding down and NASA and taxpayers were looking at budgets, and by the way, NASA received less budget uh, than they had asked for and it had actually been approved to go ahead and build SLS Orion. And the reality of it is, even with a smaller budget that NASA's had, we, NASA and industry, have stayed on, on the schedule, on timeline to execute. And part of the reason we did that was NASA realized, as did we, that, hey, we can be more efficient. We need to be more efficient. Our factory for the space shuttle booster was set up a couple of decades ago. Uh, we got very good at manufacturing those, and we also became probably less efficient because efficiency wasn't a goal we just wanted to ensure that everything was being done correctly. And now, a couple decades later, we initiated it along with NASA and said there's a process called value stream mapping. But basically, you look at your process in, within your factory, and you look at how you can streamline it, make it more efficient, and at the same time, ensure that the, the quality of your product doesn't slip and the reliability of your system is going to be as good uh, we spent well over a year doing that, us and NASA. It resulted in over 400 changes to our processes. NASA, to their credit, worked very well with us and approved all of our process recommendations, uh, that were, or process change recommendations. So we, we did. We streamlined that process such that the end result is, yes, 46% less time it takes now to produce a five-segment largest solid rocket motor in production in the world uh, than it did the little bit smaller four segment that was on the space shuttle. So it it was a very concentrated effort 
uh, with a lot of engineering and science behind it. And so it's actually a really neat story that so, you know, the, the cost of this five-segment solid rocket booster is significantly less than the, uh, the shuttle one, the space shuttle one. What changes have you made to the booster design that, that you have used before? What we've done is we've taken what we did on the space shuttle booster, which was four segments. You put them together. Uh, this one now is five segments, so it's about 20, 25% larger. The peak thrust on this motor is about a half a million pounds higher as well. I think we're 3.6 million pounds of thrust, and the space shuttle booster was a little over 3 million pounds of thrust. And the total amount of weight uh, that you can put into orbit with this booster, again, is about 20% larger. So not only did we make it larger, but along the way, we've been upgrading it with the propellant. Uh, we've been changing some. The portions in, within the rocket that insulate the steel case, uh, we found newer insulators that work well enough that we don't need as much insulation. So what that really means is instead of insulator, you can put propellant in, and that makes the motor more efficient. We're upgrading the thrust vector control system, so the nozzle has to move to control the rocket, and uh, that system is being upgraded to a state-of-the-art system as well. Although we've leveraged the heritage over all the years that you want to do in a human spaceflight program, it's actually a state-of-the-art booster that will be coming out of our factory. I understand you've been to space five times, which yes. is amazing. And from that perspective, can you discuss why we should explore deep space? So, yeah, well, well, thank you, Ian. The flying in space five times is great, and it does give you a little bit different perspective. But, you know, particularly as a, a, a space flight enthusiast and as an American, what we're developing with the SLS heavy lift rocket system is it's going to be the largest rocket in the world and it now is one that's capable enough to take humans to Mars and so to me that is so exciting you know I, I remember when we landed on the moon and, and that globally kind of changed shape and, and helped the world in many many ways you know all of mankind uh, SLS Orion allows us to have that same moment because, in fact, it'll allow us to go to Mars. Now, getting to Mars is a very difficult, risky, complicated task. And to put that in perspective, it'll take on the order of nine SLS launches to put into space everything you need to be able to send a human to Mars, let them remain there, and then return them. And so it's, it's a very difficult task. This is the foundation of that task. And I, and I believe that when we undertake tasks in that order of magnitude, the spinoffs, what it does for not just the nation but the globe, are huge. And as a result, you know, today when I look at my iPhone or the computers or the technologies, those are where they are today because of the foundation that was laid by NASA developing and pushing. Hey, we need more out of computers. Right? When we went to the moon, we didn't have the computing capacity that we needed. And by going to Mars, we'll, we'll develop similar technologies that spin off that makes everybody's life much better. But additionally, Sherry, the, the other really big thing that I, I think we need is 
this should be a huge inspiration to our students, you know, that are in kindergarten through fifth grade, obviously middle school, high school, college. But the, the inspiration to those folks to show them that, hey, they could be a part of this, right? Because it could be that fifth grader that gets enlightened by this SLS Orion system that can take us to Mars. They could be the first one stepping onto Mars, you know, to inspire our youth to go ahead and learn the STEM, but the, you know, the science, technology, engineering, and math skills, to be involved with, to be a part of this that will likely be a global endeavor, but the foundation and the leader of it, I believe, will come out of the United States. To me, it's very, very important. With the world's largest rocket ready to go, what is significant about this time in aerospace history, and what are we missing that we should know more about? The thing that's probably underestimated today is right now is a really exciting time, which you wouldn't realize because, you know, we're not launching humans out of the U.S., but the thing that's most exciting is on SLS Orion, you know, Orion is built. We're, we're going to fly it in just a, a handful of months. The, the heavy lift rocket that really has not been well socialized, and a lot of that's by us, industry, and NASA, but you know, our solid rocket booster that's going on it, we've test-fired it three times. We've got the fourth one being assembled into the, the test stand. You know, that hardware exists. The core, the, the big round core of the system, Boeing has that hardware in production today. So it, it's really exciting that, hey, this is being produced now. It, it's not just an idea or a concept. And so I think, you know, once we do a better job of getting that word out, we will see a lot of excitement and the momentum change uh, from where we, we haven't been in the news much. I think folks in our country, our, our nation is going to get very excited and ultimately take a lot of pride in the system that we are developing right here in America. That was astronaut Kent Rominger talking to us from the ATK facility in northern Utah. Looking forward to the upcoming launch and the next strides in space exploration. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. T-minus 60 seconds and counting. We are transferring to orbiter internal power at this time. Discovery is now running off its three onboard fuel cells. Coming up on a go for all the sequence start. soloists on this week's From the Top are major competition winners. I'm Christopher O'Reilly, and not only is it great fun hearing them play one after the other, but we enjoy a musical trivia quiz customized for these high achievers. It's a competition about 
competitions on this week's From the Top. Tune in this afternoon at 2 o'clock, repeated Sunday evenings at 9. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Creme Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering lunch items including veggie burgers with a lemon-garlic aioli or lentil salad with a tarragon vinaigrette. Welcome to Science Questions. This is Sherry Quinn. The origins of many medicines today can be traced to compounds found in the natural world. Many of those natural compounds are found in rare species, often in environments vulnerable to human activity. But are we in danger of losing those resources before they are even discovered? In part one of our Occasional Natural World series, featuring nature across the globe, BBC producer Monty Don explores this question in Wells, where a tree, lungwort, heavily impacted by pollution, could provide a cure for an uncommon disease in humans. The old lady that we bought our house from over 20 years ago used to come back every spring to collect elderflowers from the rather scrubby bush in front of the house. She used the flowers to make shampoo, which she said was really effective given her very sensitive skin. She'd lived in the house for over 70 years and made the shampoo all that time from the same elder bush. And her mother, she said, used no pharmacy but the hedgerow outside the kitchen window. This use and deep understanding of the medicinal qualities of common plants goes back millennia, of course. But in Europe, the first formal attempt to order this knowledge was in 1543, when the first botanic garden was instituted at Padua University, specifically to study simples, as medicinal plants were then known. In the UK, Gerard published his famous herbal in 1587, and in 1649, the physician and botanist Nicholas Culpepper published the best-known work of this type, The Complete Herbal, which he hoped to offer remedies for all ills known to 17th-century society. So by the middle of the 17th century, the relationship between plants, medicine and science was becoming increasingly sophisticated. But, in the Western world at least, with the development of the pharmaceutical business of the last hundred years or so, and with branded, patented medicines, this particular link with the natural world seems to be all but lost. To explore this, we have a field report later in the programme that looks at a tree lungwort on a single oak tree in the Elan Valley of Wales. But first, the Shared Planet correspondent Kelvin Boot is here in the studio with me. Kelvin, how important is the natural world still to human health? Well, apart from those feelings of well-being that most of us get from being close to nature, humans have been using natural medicines since the dawn of man. And the majority of drugs have been generated directly from natural products or from compounds from natural products. Now, prior to the 20th century, rather crude, semi-pure extracts of plants, animals, microbes and minerals were the only medications available as treatments. Now, as soon as it was realised it was individual compounds or chemicals that were the factors acting on diseases... Pharmacology took a great leap forward. Now, this kick-started what we now know as the pharmaceutical industry, and that continued to look to nature for cures and treatments. 
there are many classic examples of drugs from nature. So morphine, for example, purified from opium, which then comes from poppies, uh, while aspirin, very common, originally came from the bark of the willow. In fact, around 40% of all the drugs and more than 50% of the most used drugs across the globe have come from natural products. And that percentage goes up to 70% when you look specifically at anti-cancer drugs. These drugs have mostly come from plants, but all types of organisms have been the subject of investigation, often following from information gained from native peoples in all parts of the globe and in a range of environments. Now, advances in drug development allowed many of the active chemicals to be synthesised and increasingly manipulating those core chemicals became the focus of searching for drugs. And to a large extent, the natural environment as a source of new drugs became neglected. But the rate of new drug discovery began to fall, and so the emphasis is once more on the natural world, and drug companies are turning their attention back to all ecosystems. Thanks for the moment, Kevin. Now, any gardeners amongst you will be familiar with the pulmonaria, or lungwort, which over the coming few weeks will be one of the first common hardy perennials to flower in our gardens. But the tree lungwort is much rarer. Now, the good news is that this tree lungwort has been shown to provide a compound that could provide a potential cure for Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. But the bad news is that it's very sensitive to atmospheric pollution. In fact, a third of all lichens have now died out in Wales, and the tree lungwort is becoming frighteningly rare. Last summer, our shared planet correspondent Andrew Dawes met up with botanist Ray Woods in the Elan Valley in mid-Wales, to find out more. So this lungwood we're looking at here, Reed, looks to all intents and purposes like a little bit of seaweed or something just stuck to the bark of the oak tree. What, what am I actually looking at? You're looking at a lichen. Lichens, remember, are these weird organisms that consist of a fungus that's formed an association with some photosynthetic partners, an alga, or in this case both an alga and a cyanobacterium. So it's got two partners living in there. So the three of them together have formed this unique organism which is called a lichen and it's living on the bark here and they form these lettuce leaf-like growths on the tree. So we're looking at this tree lungwort here. This would have been the common lichen on mature trees across all of Wales, England, Germany, the Netherlands, Denmark. And now, as we gaze east from here, there's probably one tree with it on surviving in Herefordshire. And then the next place we can find it now is well over into the Joru, into the Swiss Alps. We've wiped it out from virtually the whole of Western Europe. But you've brought me here because this lungwort has a value over and above its nature conservation value. Yes, recently um, it's been discovered that a, a few species of lichen, including the tree lungwort, produce a chemical called a protease. This is a molecule that breaks down proteins, but more importantly, it specially selects out the badly folded, the misfolded proteins called prion proteins, which are the cause of, of uh, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, mad cow disease, and scrapie in sheep, and this uh, wasting disease in deer. So for the first time, we found a potential cure for this rather problematic disease. I say problematic because we don't know what a safe dose of prions uh, might be. And as a result, we're having to burn all the dead sheep and cows and horses in the landscape. They've all got to be burned at a very high temperature to get rid of these very persistent prion proteins. But now, amongst the lichens, in particular the tree lungwort, we've found a potential cure. So 
from being what was a nice-to-have lichen, it's now turned out to be an organism that might have huge benefits economically for us humans. Mm. But that little patch is not going to help medicine. We need to have more of this lungwort, I guess, farmed, grown on, to, to help medical scientists extract this chemical. Well, we're, we're fortunate that we're pretty certain it's the fungus in this lichen that's producing this substance. And it's possible to culture the fungus on its own. You provide it with all the nutrients it needs and it will grow on its own and produce this. We only need a tiny bit of the lungwort. What concerns me, though, if you look back through, through the history of things like the antibiotics, if we look back at the original discovery of penicillin, the fungus in which the penicillin was originally discovered produced tiny amounts of penicillin. It was never going to produce enough to supply the world with a useful antibiotic. Fortunately, by searching in related species, we found that there were other species of penicillin which produced more of the antibiotic, and then we've selected strains of that through time which produced more and more. So now we've got fungi that produce a thousand times more than the original fungus that, in which it was discovered. You know, for example, um, cytosporins, this is a little fungus which is used for organ transplants. It suppresses our immune system. Without the discovery of, this, of cytosporins, we'd never have been able to have organ transplants but the original discovery was in a fungus that produced not enough for it to be commercially viable so the pharmaceutical firms then went back into the wild and looked in suitable places to see if they could find related species which might produce more and sure enough after about a year of searching they did and as a result we can now all enjoy if enjoys the right word you know liver transplants kidney transplants and so on here we're talking about lungwort and lichens are other species of lungwort, lichens, lower plants, equally as valuable, do you think, to medicine, generally? They have a huge potential. I mean, lichens have a growth form. Most of them grow very, very slowly, sit there for a very long time. They're subject to all sorts of attacks from other fungi and other bacteria and so on. And so they're very likely to have created a whole armoury of substances to protect themselves. It's interesting that penicillium comes from a group of fungi called the sac fungi. What are most of the lichens? Most of the lichens are sac fungi. Something like, well, nearly half of all the sac fungi recorded from Britain are in fact lichens. And very, very few of them have ever been looked at in detail um, for antibiotic properties. But we know they're rich in hundreds of different sorts of at least you know, these unique uh, lichen acids, for example. Just one group of substances unique to these. So they have the potential for providing us with all sorts of interesting new materials. So you're quite passionate about this, really. I mean, you've, I'm getting the impression that you think the pharmaceutical industry has lost sight of what nature can actually provide. Yes, we've become so used to, to relying on big business providing us with these substances as well, and we've, we've tended to think that, that capitalism will deliver. It will deliver an awful lot. But it isn't capable of delivering everything. It isn't capable of delivering you know, the conservation of the stock materials on which the industry is based, for example. It's never thought that through. I mean, when was the pharmaceutical industry known to, to, to buy and look after a woodland for the basis of its potential genetic diversity? It hasn't done that. I, mean, I look out here and see all these wonderful fungi which are assisting within the oak tree above us here. 60 or 70 different fungi, at least, are living in the leaves, helping this tree to remain healthy, to grow, to resist diseases. Big business could make use of a lot of these things, but it can't at present see how it can make profits out of them because you can't patent a species. For the first time, we can discover these species because we can now look at their DNA. It's only in the last 10 years we've been able to do this. We didn't even know of their existence before. We're finding there are bacteria living inside the fungi, living inside these leaves, which fix nitrogen. 
just like the root nodules. We never suspected that, but now we can pick them up through their DNA and we're beginning to understand that you know, this tree here is not just a tree. It's a huge, complex ecosystem, all functioning in a very complicated way. And there's so much more in here for us to discover, so much more for us to potentially use for the benefit of mankind. But we've got to look after it. If it's not here, we won't be able to use it. Botanist Ray Woods there highlighting the value that lichens, like the tree lungwort, could have to humans. Now, to discuss this kind of work further, I have on the line Monique Simmons, who's the deputy keeper of the Jodrell Laboratory and head of Kew's Sustainable Uses Group. Professor Simmons' current research is on the economic uses of plants and fungi, and in particular their potential pharmaceutical uses. Professor Simmons, are you just looking at chemicals or or other other compounds in plants that are relevant? At the moment it's the chemical composition that uh, we're really interested Mm -hmm. in and that will go from small compounds like your your phenolics are often well known for flavonoids with antioxidant type activity which is the role they often play in a plant and therefore have a potential with us but also it's the carbohydrates and some of the proteins in plants um, that I think are going to be an increased interest because there's there's evidence that they can stimulate the immune system in people, Hmm. which is most likely why plants are often used in combinations where some of them have the active ingredients, others have the ability to um, boost and enhance people's um, defence systems. I suppose all of this does beg... uh one question that has to be dealt with is that why are you, are we, attending to plants in this way when we can synthesize this stuff in a laboratory? Surely in the 21st century, we could move on from this kind of material. Plants are chemical factories. They've evolved such a huge diversity of different biosynthetic pathways that come together to build up a range of compounds that are often beyond the imagination of a organic chemist. So we're really looking at why has nature evolved them? How can we maximise those benefits? And then, once you've identified something that's got a potential, how can you maybe make it more simpler? And that's, that's the role, really, of the organic chemist. But nature is just really incredible how, how plants have evolved to adapt to different habitats And often they can do that by the complexity of the chemistry within them. They've been on the earth longer than we have. Mm. So I think it's very much for us to learn from them. Does it matter in terms of the pharmaceutical value where and how we grow plants? Or will the plant always provide the same values? No, it's often influenced by a genetic makeup, the ability to express the enzymes that result in the synthesis of a particular group of compounds, and that can vary from one population within a species. And then it will often be associated with the um, the habitat, soil conditions. Altitude can also influence the expression of the compounds. We've done some really fascinating work in in parts of um, South Africa in a project in which we were going in to kind of assist with the conservation of some plant material. And we were going to transfer some material to an area that we'd got a plot to grow the material. 
And the indigenous communities were talking to us and said, well, actually, you really need to bring the spirits with those plants. If you just transfer them there, they might not have the, you know, the properties that we need. And we thought, you know, how do we do that? And they were suggesting, we, you know, we take the soil. So we did some experiments with uh, 15 species. And on 10 of those species, if we just transferred them without taking any account of the soil, we would have possibly been grown uh, poor quality material. The chemical profiles in those plants were not the same as the original. And I think we've often made mistakes in the past by not paying enough attention to the conditions that a plant grows in, having a better understanding. Maybe it's the mycorrhiza, the fungi in the soil, that we've been overlooking. When it comes to traditional knowledge, uh, folk knowledge, uh, you referred to to people needing the spirits that go with the plant. These roads lead to the divide between alternative medicine and conventional medicine, both sides which defend their positions very strongly and quite often with quite a lot of antagonism. Do you see a synthesis that will emerge or could emerge from this? I think it definitely could emerge, but you need to be open-minded. As a scientist, I prefer to have a null hypothesis, you know, that does this plant, does it have an activity? Going in and saying, you know, no, it doesn't, and having a um, very cynical approach I prefer to go in rather with an open mind. You know, work in the science lead me to understanding its use and kind of evaluating how how a plant could be used in combination with your westernised drugs. As population grows and we start to, to push into hitherto wild territory, unoccupied territory, presumably our resources are going to diminish. Where are you looking to get your natural material? And is that going to dry up? I think there's an assumption there that areas of the world that really haven't been explored will come up with new leads. It's very interesting when you start to look at uh, biodiversity-rich areas. It's not always a correlate with coming up with something that's really interesting. I think one of the areas we need to be putting more emphasis on is those extremes, either tops of mountains or the mangroves, where because of changes in climate, they're being affected more. And what we don't want to do is lose anything that might be affected over the next few years. So making sure that we have conserved those plants. Another area that I think um, is going to be worth looking at is the desert areas have a better understanding of how plants are able to survive in some of those extreme areas. I really wouldn't like to lose those other habitats that maybe looks possibly a little bit more boring, but to be able to survive in areas that are exposed to salt water and non-salted water areas, now that requires a really complex biosynthetic pathway within a plant to do that. We don't know how they do it. Let's learn from nature. I think on that note, I can't can't top that. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. Now, it would seem that plants and fungi are the main source of potential beneficial pharmaceutical compounds. But Kelvin alluded to the other areas of the natural world that also might be rich in medicinal material. And Marcel Jaspers 
is Professor of Organic Chemistry at the University of Aberdeen and is project leader of Pharmacy, which is currently exploring the Atacama Trench in the Pacific Ocean, 100 miles off the coast of South America, for new compounds for drug use. Professor Jaspers, why are you going to so much trouble to look for new material in one of the most inaccessible and extreme places on this planet? Globally, we've been looking at drugs from various resources, particularly soil samples from all over the world, including bizarre places like Easter Island, and found drugs there that were unique and different. And the next logical extension is to go to really extreme environments like deep oceans and cold ice and things in the middle of the desert, for instance, because these extreme environments have yielded some very unusual life forms. So far, we've shown, at least from uh, a set of samples that we obtained from the Mariana Trench, the deepest place on the Earth, that this is indeed the case, uh, that you get new types of bacteria living there, giving us different life forms, different chemistry, different biology. The average depth of the oceans is about 4,000 meters, so we really don't know very much about life at great depth. And I think just more science is needed to look at where the interesting life is. And we've just chosen the trenches as one example because we know at least a little bit about them. Now, that implies that it's not a renewable resource. Yes. So, I mean, what we do is we take small samples and once we get them up to the surface, we are growing bacteria from those. And those bacteria can be regrown anytime we want to. So once we've got them once, we don't need to go back again to get them again. So we have enough to work with for many, many years. And as well as being different from life forms uh, outside the trenches, how diverse is the life form within the trenches? There have been some studies on that, and what that shows us is that, say, if I look at a terrestrial environment, I will find a lot of different species. If I go to a deep ocean trench, what I'll find is that the diversity is greater at the higher levels. So instead of being different species, there'll be different genus or families or orders, and there'll be greater diversity at those higher levels of taxonomy. So you have a very particular type of life form. And how does that relate? Why do we need to go to those different life forms? Each one of them carries within it a set of instructions to make these different chemicals. And these instructions can be as different as, as making penicillin on the one side and making an anti-transplant rejection drug on the other side. And by having lived in different uh, communities, these organisms will have fought each other in different ways. Uh, it's kind of chemical warfare out there, and you know only the fittest survive. Therefore, those that can produce the most interesting chemicals essentially will survive for the longest. And that will give us the chemistry that we're looking for to produce new drugs. And what type of drugs need this kind of development? What are you looking for in particular? The three things that always do very well out of natural resources are um, anti-cancer agents, antibacterial agents and antifungals, so antimicrobials, and finally anti-inflammatory. So those are the kind of things that um, we are looking for. Given how much pharmaceutical companies spend and what their resources are, it seems surprising to me that A, this hasn't been done before, and B, that more money isn't being poured into it. There's a couple of reasons. One is that uh, the pharmaceutical industry is not very familiar with environments such as the oceans. They have always built on terrestrial resources in the past. And there's a few brave companies that have looked at the deep sea environments and, and just, say, reef environments. The second reason is that, for whatever reason, developing antibiotics is not very profitable. And therefore, they haven't really been investigated. So there's an approach here where we're trying to say, look, this is an interesting thing to do. Let's see if we can find some interesting drug-like molecules that can be used for antibiotic trials and then cooperate with drug companies to develop them to a further level. 
You say that you only need to, to extract once and then you can effectively develop from the material you've taken. Is that always going to be true? Is there not a risk that if you are very successful that there could be a kind of gold rush? Yes, there have been cases in the past um, of researchers being a little bit gung-ho about taking very large numbers of, of, of organisms from the seafloor to develop enough material for, say, uh, animal trials. That is frowned upon, of course. Uh, and more recently, what we've been able to do is to look at, for instance, different ways of developing molecules that come from, say, a sponge uh, found on a reef. So once you've found the molecules, quite often it's not necessary to go back to nature. You can reproduce that using a process that either involves pure chemistry or biology and chemistry. So really, I think most people in my field are very aware of the environmental implications and also how difficult it is to get this material from the organism. It's hard to extract. You don't get a very high yield. And often it's hard to find the organism again. It might sound ironic, but um, two organisms of the same type found one mile apart may yield different chemistry. I'm interested to know any possible copyright and ownership positions. That If you're taking material from the ocean bed presumably outside territorial waters in some cases. Who owns the rights? So that's a tricky question. As you understand, within territorial waters, it belongs to the country it comes from. That's straightforward. In areas beyond national jurisdiction, in open ocean, in fact, it belongs to everyone. So it's, it's a common heritage of mankind, is the statement in the United Nations Convention of Laws of the Sea. The difficulty is that something that belongs to everyone cannot be um, owned and patented. So there's a little bit of a, a, a problem between those, those areas. Some people say you can, some people say you can't own it. What we're doing to help resolve this difficulty is to work with the European Commission and with the United Nations and the Conventional Biodiversity Secretariat as well to make sure we can get um, some clarity in this law, what could happen to a result of a, a piece of research like this how we could perhaps apply for a patent on any of the things that we do find that are interesting and commercializable, and then who should share in the royalties of that patent. And the kind of approach that we would like to take and, and propose in the future is to think about this common resource, if it belongs to everyone, then everyone should benefit. So that the, the group that commercializes it has to benefit too, otherwise they wouldn't do the work. But finally, some of the royalty, if it ever arises, goes back into a common pot managed by, for instance, the International Seabed Authority, who would then use that to promote deep ocean surveys, um, monitoring the environment, allowing researchers from landlocked and developing countries to take part in research in the deep oceans. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed, Marcel. Okay. That's no really problem. interesting. Thanks a lot. Kelvin, it does seem that there is growing recognition for this kind of research and exploration into all areas of the natural world, but... I think there is likely to be a problem with ownership and patenting. And is it going to become a kind of gold rush which will destroy the resource that we're after? Well, that is always a danger. But uh, the world has changed over the last few decades. And so many developing countries are much more aware of the value of their natural potential. So access is much more restricted and controlled. In 1991, the Convention on Biological Diversity, uh, Marcel Jaspers mentioned that, highlighted bioprospecting as an area 
of concern for a sustainable environment and made recommendations that every country should formulate a policy on how the search for natural products should be conducted within their territories. Many have done so, and they mostly follow some pretty simple rules. New Zealand's a good example, insisting that bioprospectors need to ensure there's no long-term decline in biodiversity resulting from any investigation and exploitation. Uh, above all, uh, bioprospecting should be sensitive. And so, as, again, as we heard, only small amounts should be taken and access should be kept to a minimum and all activities should be monitored. Uh, so it's unlikely to become a free-for-all or a gold rush. But we shouldn't forget there's another side to this, and that's if you look at almost any conservation organisation's website that deals with rainforests or coral reefs, it will highlight the treasure of potential natural products, including medicines, as a strong reason to protect those environments. Well, thank you very much indeed, Calvin. Thank you for listening. That was Monty Dunn from ABC's Shared Planet. Sherry Quinn, Science Questions. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the College of Science at Utah State University, where graduates' acceptance rates to medical, dental, and graduate schools exceed national averages. When students and faculty learn together, discovery follows. Information at usu.edu science. Lester Brown, an old tomato farmer and author and co-author of 50 books, the latest called World on the Edge, How to Prevent Environmental and Economic Collapse, referred to by the Washington Post as one of the world's most influential thinkers, says that melting glaciers tied to water shortages will ultimately lead to a major food crisis. We have a number of trends now, including the melting of the glaciers in the Himalayas and on the Tibetan Plateau. It is the ice melt from these glaciers that sustains the major rivers of Asia during the dry season and the irrigation systems dependent on those rivers. So we're looking at a substantially reduced supply of water to irrigate rice and wheat crops in countries like China and India. And this obviously is going to affect the world food balance. The melting of the Greenland ice sheet raises sea level and shrinks the rice harvest in Asia because a large share of Asia's rice harvest is grown in low-lying river deltas, as in Bangladesh and the, v the Mekong Delta in Vietnam and so forth. Um, there's a rule of thumb now among crop ecologists that for each one degree Celsius rise in temperature during the growing season, we can expect a 10% decline in wheat, rice, and corn yields, for example. So these things are all tied together, and, and that's what we're beginning to realize. Um, it's interesting that the earlier civilizations that declined and collapsed, in most cases, was because of, of a decline in the food supply. And I've long rejected the idea that that could happen to our modern civilization. But unless we can turn some of these trends around, um, unless we can stabilize climate, unless we can stabilize aquifers, we're going to be in trouble on the food front. SQ Radio interviewed Lester Brown and Coco Warner, the head of the Climate Adaptation Section for the United Nations. Both featured in the 2010 documentary film Climate Refugees about the impact of climate change on societies. Warner says no matter what, every citizen needs to prioritize climate change. 
I think there, there have been a lot of questions in the United States about whether or not climate change is real. And I'm from the US, I'm actually a hometown Utah girl, um, but I live in Germany. And I'm always quite amazed that there's a debate about climate change. The science is quite clear. Um, however, I do respect the questions that are being raised in certain pockets, and it's very important that we always ask better questions, and I think that's what scientists are trying to do. Is climate change real? What are the impacts? What's causing it? Everyone needs to ask those questions, and scientists keep each other honest. There's not a lot of money in science, uh, at least respective to business or other things, and uh, all, all that scientists have are their good reputation. Um, what I wanted to say is I think the questions that perhaps come from the far right about whether or not climate change is real, very valid and they're respectable questions. However, I do have a concern about the motivations for the questioning and the motivations for casting doubt, one, that climate change is real, two, that people's actions have anything to do with it, and three, that we already impact or we already feel the impacts of climate change. Because at the end of the day, it's about responsibility. I hope that there is no climate change. I really hope so. But I've been out there. We did case studies all over the world. And in every single case study, migrants told us that environmental change and climate change contribute right now to their ability to survive and to their choices to move. And in some cases, people don't have choices. It's impacting us now. And I think if we look away and don't acknowledge responsibility or acknowledge our own power to act, we'll miss tremendous opportunities that will affect us. Climate change isn't happening in some faraway place. It's happening here and it's really, it's about giving chances to our children. And left, right, center, we all want our children to have good lives. And if we don't act now, we will rob future generations of that possibility. Lester Brown recently wrote a note in a copy of his new book, Talani Thompson, that read, Things do not seem to be headed in the right direction. Lonnie told us that, unfortunately, that just about sums up the general feeling in the scientific community. The melting glaciers don't only wash away history, but initiate a cascade of environmental repercussions, like rising sea levels, floods, and subsequent food and water shortage. And though communities with fewer resources and lower incomes are being hit first, this is a global problem. Nature is the timekeeper, and at the current melting rate, no one knows exactly how long we have before the world's glaciers completely disappear. Abrupt climate change strategies to reduce greenhouse gases and emissions from fossil fuels need to be adopted, and we all need to act now. For SQ Radio, this is Sherry Quinn and Susie Montgomery. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. I'm Megan Van Frank. This week, find out how John Wesley Powell's scientific exploration of Utah's river country turned into a harrowing journey through brutal and beautiful terrain. First, this. The Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by the Utah Humanities Council with support from a We the People grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. 
More than 140 years ago, on August 30, 1869, six men in two wooden boats emerged into open country from the high cliffs and rough waters of the Grand Canyon. They were blackened, bearded, emaciated, in rags, and down to their last stash of moldy flour. They were lucky to be alive. Three months earlier, Major John Wesley Powell and his crew of nine men had put into the Green River in Wyoming, with gear and supplies sufficient for ten months. The aim of the expedition was to explore and map the canyons of the Green and Colorado Rivers, which ran through the heart of Utah and the last uncharted lands in the continental United States. This was not a government expedition, but the personal passion of Major Powell, a one-armed Civil War veteran from Illinois and geology professor inspired by the promise of scientific discovery. Powell knew the trip would be dangerous, for rumors and Indian reports told of inaccessible canyons and raging water. He estimated the route to be about 300 miles long, but instead found the river ran more than 1,000 miles through a chain of majestic red rock canyons up to 6,000 feet deep and was as uncrossable and unrunnable as advertised. The party found trouble early on with rapids taking one boat and most of their supplies. Fearful of losing their remaining food, not to mention their lives, they portaged where possible but were forced to run many of the worst rapids. Unknown hazards loomed around every bend, and the crew grew impatient with Powell's scientific research. We surely will all die if we continue on this journey, they worried, but could not convince Powell to abandon the river. Ultimately deserted by four of his crew, Powell's focus on scientific precision eventually turned to basic survival. Powell did survive that first recorded run down the Colorado River and returned two years later to do it again. His surveys were crucial to the scientific study and opening of the region following the Civil War. Sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive may be found at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of the Utah Humanities Council, I'm Megan Van Frank. Visit us online at upr.org and click on the Beehive Archive link. Thank you for listening to Access Utah and Science Questions today. For more programming, you go to our website at upr.org. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 89.5 Logan, KUSK HD1 88.5 Vernal, KUSL HD1 89.3 Richfield, KUST HD1 88.7 Moab, KCEU 89.7 Price, and KUSU FM HD1 91.5 Logan. 